Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This time of year can get pretty frantic with holidays, holiday preparations, and all kinds of social engagements. This is, of course, the season of giving. But it's also a season of reflection, a time to think about how our roles on this planet or about our roles on this planet and the kind of legacy we may be creating. This hour, how we can give to the natural world and give gifts that deepen our connection to nature. Wildlife biologist Jim Pease is here to be our guide. Hello, Jim. Hi, Charity. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Day. A beautiful, beautiful <laughs> day, and happy holidays to you, Jim. Same to you and so, yours. Yes. So we're going to talk about giving to nature and wildlife. But tell me a little bit about, in this in this case, how are you defining wildlife? Well, well people who've uh, heard us talk before know that I, I was uh, extension wildlife specialist. And generally, when people think of that, they think of that as one word, uh, wildlife, meaning birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians. Uh, but I like to think of it sometimes as two words, wildlife, because you don't have the critters without uh, without all the plants. So uh, I, I like to think of it as all of the natural world, not just um, uh, the critters, the animals that, that, that might be in it. So today we're going to focus on wildlife as two words, not just one. All right. And this is one of those rare opportunities that you have to uh, tread in the world of plants, because I know you made a deal a <laughs> long time ago with the horticulture folks that you would talk <laughs> animals and they could talk plants. Right. Right. And, and sometimes uh, we cross over. I, I was occasionally on uh, Hort Fridays many years ago, but uh, generally it, uh, uh, because we had a separate wildlife program on Talk of Iowa, we, we, uh, we do restrict it. But uh, I, I know <laughs> Donald Lewis and I, he, he's dealt with anything six legs or more, and I, I dealt with anything under six legs. So. <laughs> Perfectly fair. Perfectly fair. Right, right. Well, and I mean, so I do, I think we should start with talking about plants because okay. um, that is such an important component of supporting wildlife, of investing in our environment, isn't it? Oh, it is because, it, you know, when you think about basic needs of all um critters, uh, it's, it's food, water, and shelter, and often the food and shelter are directly uh, related to plants. It's the plants that make up uh, much of that habitat, and the, uh, from, from prairies to savannas to wetlands to, uh, to woodlands, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the plants in it that, that create that habitat for the, uh, the animals to live in. Uh, it, and, and we've, we've had, of course, in our urban areas over the last, well, in my lifetime, we've had two major, um, uh, problems with plants because we tended to plant monocultures. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, in Southeastern Iowa and Burlington, we had, uh, a beautiful street line, the streets were lined, uh, all of them, in fact, were lined with American elm. And of course, uh, people that are my age and, and even, uh, uh younger people remember, when all of the, the Dutch elm disease came in and, and over a year's period, that whole um, street went from totally shaded, almost cathedral-like to 
empty of trees because mm-hmm. all of the elms died and had to be taken down. And recently, uh, we're now experiencing, of course, uh, emerald ash borer. And uh, uh, some cities and towns didn't listen to the, uh, the experts and didn't plant a variety. They went in and planted a lot of green ash and maybe a few other ashes, but especially ash. And now emerald ash borer has come in, and we've seen massive die-offs of, uh, of, of green ashes. I've, I've driven on country roads and seen what uh, uh, whole woodlots that were nothing but ash and, and people's, um, you know, the edges, uh, the windrows were often planted with ash. Uh, I have a lot of ash on my property, uh, on our, our acreage, but, but, and we've lost a lot of them. Uh, we lost all the ashes. But I've planted over the years lots of other species in there to replace that, a greater variety. So eventually those other trees will, will uh, gradually replace the ash. But this massive loss is uh, not going to end. Uh, we'll, we'll certainly have other diseases, other insects uh, that come in uh, unexpectedly and uh, do great damage to our, the, the tree and shrub cover uh, the the plants in, in our landscape. So the greater variety of things we have planted, the better off we are and the better off the habitat is. Uh, it won't change quite so uh, uh, drastically, we hope. Well, I mean, for so long, we did plant purely on aesthetics. So many of us planted in our own personal right. landscapes, purely on aesthetics. And when you think of those tree-lined streets, I mean, that was, it is, wherever that happens, that is incredibly sure. beautiful and striking. But we do need to think deeper when we choose plants for our landscape. That's for sure. And and ashes, for example, were, were wonderful because they were very tolerant of uh, vehicle exhaust and even some salt <laughs> that was applied to streets and roads. And so a lot of people thought, oh, this is an ideal sort of uh, uh, tree to have to line our streets with. Well, but you've got to, again, uh, you lose them all at once. And it's not, uh, I, I know just here on the Iowa State University campus, um, at one point, and we have a lot of variety of trees, uh, but at one point, I think they, the survey was uh, over 3,000 different kinds of ashes, but they were all ashes. And so they planned gradually to remove them as uh, economically as possible over a series of years before emerald ash borer even got here. And that's very controversial, um, but it, it happens. We, we lost all the American chestnut to... Uh, um, a disease that came in and affected all the chestnuts. And now there are some some chestnuts that seem to be resistant that uh, are being back on the market, and you probably talked about that on Heart Friday. Uh, but um, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. So the, the greater the variety of trees, and particularly native trees. Now we look at climate change and what that could do to our, our landscape. Uh, it's it's sort of unpredictable at some point, but I think the more we stick with natives, even if you're beginning to plan uh, to to put in some of the natives from southern Iowa and central and northern Iowa to try to because trees take a long time to mature, of course, depending on the species, but uh, you want to plant something that's going to provide for habitat for wildlife, so it's going to provide that food uh, and or shelter uh, that that species are going to need no matter what. Uh, so you, you, you think about that and think, well, maybe I could 
get by with planting something a little farther south in Iowa or even northern Missouri, but it's native that will uh, plan for the future a little bit. So, again, we talk about this a lot on Fridays, but do you have a few species that, that you feel are often overlooked or sure. things that you'd yeah. like to recommend? Yeah. From, from a wildlife standpoint, it's, it's uh, uh, with trees, a, a variety of oaks, both reds and whites. Uh, that's Iowa State. The oak is Iowa State tree, but there are lots of varieties out there. And, uh, for example, chinkapin is generally thought to be a southern, mostly southern Iowa. It does creep into central Iowa, but mostly a southern Iowa, southeastern Iowa species. Uh, but as climates change, uh, it, it has crept up the Des Moines River Valley, uh, uh, up the Iowa River Valley, and, and they're often uh, a little farther north. And they're a beautiful oak tree. Um, so planting a variety of oaks, not just a single, uh, a, a white oak or, or a red oak, but maybe some of each is, uh, is really important. Oaks provide not only wonderful, wonderful um, uh, you know, shade and, and, and homes for, for wildlife, but uh, uh, have that important thing that so many trees provide is a mast crop, M-A-S-T, a mast crop. The fruit crop of it, in terms of oaks, of course, it's it's acorns. Now, if you want to plant something else uh, that will give you shade more quickly than slow-growing oaks will, I'd recommend certainly, if you can, uh, a sycamore. Um, and sycamores are fast-growing, uh, beautiful shade trees. They're messy in lots of uh, landscapes. They they give off those those big round fruits. Uh, sycamores normally grow along river bottoms, and um, you can, uh, but they're they're gorgeous uh, uh, to decorate that river bottom, and those seeds uh, float, and so a sycamore spreads by its seeds falling into the water and goes downstream. But they're also used as uh, they're not favored by wildlife, but those seeds can still be an important mast crop for uh, for species that that feed uh, feed on seeds. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other thing, uh, and, and don't forget the shrub layer. And there are lots of shrubs, and I know you talk about, uh, they've talked a lot about this on, on Horde Fridays, but uh, a couple of my, my favorites in terms of uh, wildlife uh, would be, one would be highbush cranberry. Highbush cranberry is, a, is a, in the genus viburnum. There are lots of viburnums available. The advantage to planting a viburnum is that the fruits are often on the, they're not, uh, uh, the favorite of birds at, at uh, when they're when they're on the tree. So the the berries often persist on the uh, 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 on the shrub. Uh, the uh, highbush cranberry viburnum is a um, uh, has beautiful red fruits. They also have gorgeous fall color, and uh, the red fruits uh, are not favored. And and I my viburn my highbush cranberry now still have red berries, bright red berries on them. And you'd think, well, gee, the birds would find those, but they don't favor them until they've been frozen for a while and they begin to ferment. And then, <laughs> then the birds like them, you know, so, so, so they will not they really them. start to get good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But so, that's so important so, because, of course, they need a, a food source as it gets colder later in the year. And that's exactly. part of the annual cycle, right? Right, right. Yeah, so you spread out that food supply. By planting this variety, you spread out that food supply through the winter months so that those winter birds 
that hang around have something that they can eat a little uh, later in the in the year. Another one that is favored by birds, so it disappears very quickly, uh, are elderberries. That's one that that uh, is an old-fashioned shrub. Think people think of it in terms of wine, elderberry wine. Uh, but I tell you, it is one gorgeous shrub when it blooms, uh, huge white blooms, and the berries are loved by birds. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. With me today, Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University and Environmental Interpretive and Wildlife Consultant. We are talking about giving to nature, and we'll also talk about how nature gives to us in a few minutes. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking today about giving to nature this holiday season. And also we'll talk about how nature gives to us things we can do to help deepen our connection to the natural world and gifts we can give to deepen the connection of those we love. With me today, wildlife biologist Jim Pease. And we would also love to hear from you. If you have given a gift of nature a, a natural experience, something unique. Tell us about it. We'd love to hear your story. 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. Or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. So, uh, Jim, we've been talking a lot about plants so far. You've gotten to indulge your, your the plant side of your personality. <laughs> uh, I think we should talk about birds, which I know is a, a deep, deep passion passion of yours. And there are lots of ways we can give to birds, right? Oh, there sure are. The, you know, if you're you're planting these plants, uh, you could give gift certificates for, uh, for people to pick up these plants at nurseries uh, in in the springtime when it's appropriate to plant them. But it's, it's important, I think, to, uh, uh, you know, to think about it now and uh, uh, giving a gift certificate to someone to a nursery for and and choose a nursery that has native plants. I, I really want to emphasize the native part of that because I think that's really important. Uh, and it could be, it might not be for trees or shrubs. It might be for uh, pollinator plants as well. Again, stick with the natives, uh, prairie plants, that sort of thing as much as possible. And there are lots of nurseries that, uh, that do that. But birds, of course, uh, are the ones that we are, are, are so popular uh, bird watching is is so popular just nationwide. Um, uh, it, it's incredible how much uh, people spend on on uh, bird feed, um, uh, uh, myself included. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, it, it it it's a very great way to uh, enjoy nature, sort of sort of passively. Uh, birds don't need that uh, uh, bird feed. But they like that, and it, what it does is, is bird feeding brings birds sort of up close and personal, makes it possible for you to uh, uh, to see them close from inside the comfort of your home, 
if you're only feeding in the winter, for example, and watching them uh, uh, out of doors. Uh, and giving people a, a, a bird feeder and some feed, I think, is a, is a great way to, to gift not only them, but the wildlife uh, around them, because it does Im- imply or it, it supplies a, an, a, a food source in, in the toughest time of year. If you can only uh, feed one feed and, and from one feeder, uh, the best thing to feed, of course, is black oil sunflower seed. It feeds the greatest variety of, of, of uh, birds, and it, it has a very high oil content and fat content, which is what birds need in the wintertime uh, to make it through the very uh, serious cold spells. Black oil sunflower seed, the seeds are smaller than those big sunflower seeds that you might chew yourself. Um, it's uh, available at, at lots of uh, stores of, uh, all over the state. Uh, but be careful about buying the cheapest thing. It, black oil, sunflower seed, like everything, the prices have gone up in, in recent years. Uh, but uh, if you, you, you buy a bag of that, you can be assured that the birds are going to use it all and they will um, uh, benefit from that seed. As I said, it feeds the widest variety of birds as well, everything from little chickadees who will hold that seed between their feet and crack it open with that little tiny beak, uh, to nuthatches that wedge it into the bark of a tree and break open the, the, the seed coating so that they can get at the, the, uh, the nutrition inside, the nutritious uh, 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 seed inside, uh, to cardinals who can take it in one side of their beak and spit the shell out the other. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, so it, it, it really feeds a wide variety of, of species. Um, beware of the feeds that are um, uh, cheap, uh, I should say. And, and there are lots of stores that sell these, well-meaning, uh, but there's a lot of filler in that seed. Uh, filler meaning seeds that birds uh, just simply won't eat. And uh, uh, so buying that, uh, uh, those mixes that have, uh, oh, some of them have good seed in it, like uh, uh, might have white prosomillet and, and uh, uh, some sunflower seeds and maybe even a few peanuts, uh, that sort of thing, the, peanut, the, the peanuts themselves, not the shelled ones. Uh, but if it, it also has lots of other stuff in there that is going to cause problems and is really not going to be eaten by the birds. So you're sort of paying for stuff that isn't what you want to attract. So I, I really recommend if you're going to feed just one, one feeder, one thing, just feed black oil, sunflower seed. It's, it, it'll be the best for you. But so, what a great gift, you know. To, yeah. To, to well, <laughs> and that's, that's what I wanted to say, because it is something that we feel like we're doing for the birds. Um, and they appreciate it. It's really it. for us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but tell me a little bit, as somebody who loves your feeders and loves to watch birds, and you've seen your grandkids interact with this, you know, this is a real opportunity to wonder, to ask questions, to observe something fairly passively and enjoyably, but it's kind of a window to the world. So tell me how you think about how that deepens our connection with nature to sit in your sunroom and watch your birds. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that uh, is so enjoyable uh, and, and has been for many, many years for us. And, and we just get a kick out of, out of watching the individual antics. You learn 
an awful lot about about individual species and how they interact with other species and other birds of their own species, how that changes through the year. Um, cardinals, for example, in the wintertime, we may have, oh, uh, up to 14 or 15 pairs of cardinals at our feeders in the wintertime. And we have a lot of feeders uh, around the house so, so we can see them from all sides. But uh, in, the, in the summertime, as you move towards spring, you see that they're no longer in groups of five or six uh, birds at a time because they're more territorial. And you see that change through the seasons. You see the difference between the males and the females of the red-bellied woodpeckers and and the downies and hairy woodpeckers, and and look at their behavior. Uh, uh, we've watched. Uh, uh, there's there, there's a tree that we have a couple of feeders hanging from right outside our front window, and uh, there are certain notches on that tree that are in the bark that are favored not just by one species but by several species for cracking over open the sunflower seeds and and other birds have uh, learned we have a white-breasted nuthatch who sits there and waits for others to put the seed in the notch and then goes and scares them away <laughs> and takes the seed for himself you know there it's fun to watch the you realize there are individual personalities not only of uh, of of a certain group of species but of individuals within that as well. There are, are personalities just as there are in humans. So it really, I think it, it connects, uh, particularly as our society has become increasingly urban, um, it connects people to the natural world. Uh, I, I have a friend who lives, uh, has been a lifelong birder, but now lives in the fifth floor of a, uh, of a retirement center. And uh, so it's, it's hard for him to feed birds, but he, in the summertime, he puts up um, a hummingbird feeder and five stories up, he gets, he gets birds right, uh, he gets hummingbirds right outside his window. And it's so special. Yeah. It's just, it's, it, it, it really deepens people's connection and you realize you're a part of this thing we call life. Uh, and it includes lots of other species, uh, that, that we can share this world with. Uh, and, and bird feeding is just, just one way to do that. Now, before we move on from bird feeding, Marilyn has a question for you. She says, I've been watering the birds, now dealing with frozen water. Is this a problem for birds if I stop putting out water? The squirrels have also been drinking the water, too. And, Jim, that feels like a particularly important question with the drought we've been experiencing. Yeah. In fact, uh, our bird baths have gotten emptied so quickly this year, and, and especially because, uh, I think, of the drought. Um, our stream has dried up. Uh, we do have a, a pond in the summertime, that, uh, but it's frozen now. But uh, as, as, she, as Marilyn has noticed, uh, uh, the birds and squirrels are going on these warm days when the, the ice begins to melt. Uh, you can, uh, you, the squirrels and the birds will pick at the edges and are getting some water uh, out of that. I think it's really important. It's another way to attract uh, birds. One of the things that are, are available now uh, are heated uh, bird baths. Uh, we have two of our bird baths are heated, one that is not, uh, but uh, uh, it, it doesn't take much electricity. And it does, it's not like a, a, a sauna for, you know, or a hot tub for birds. It just keeps it above freezing so that the water is, is open. So those are, are certainly available if, if you want to do that. Uh, but I, you can also just go out on a daily basis, provide some water, uh, maybe midday uh, 
for them uh, in a in a in a bird bath that they're used to coming to. And yes, that'll freeze. Maybe at some point it'll unfreeze a little bit later in the afternoon or something. Uh, but providing a, some water once a day probably will a, attract a bunch of them if you don't want to have a, a constant uh, bird, uh, you know, a heater underneath that bird bath. But yeah, providing water is another great way to attract birds. A wonderful way to interact with the natural world. We've talked about you it bet. before. We've talked about the uh, the Merlin app, which is available <laughs> for your smartphone. And I mean, Jim, it really, it is so much fun to use this app. For people who haven't heard of it, Describe how it works. Well, it's it's an app that uh, you can get on your phone from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, Merlin is spelled M-E-R-L-I-N, and uh, that's the name of a bird, uh, a, 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 a falcon, uh, that is common across the boreal forest. Uh, but it's it uh, uh, it's also the name of this app, and uh, it, it's it's free. Uh, you can download it for free from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and maybe even on other uh, app suppliers. I'm not sure. But the fun thing about it is, is it listens. You turn it on and it listens to the birds around you and will identify them for you by their call, which are communication between each other, or their their song, in which case it might be that's territorial. Um uh, so calls and songs, they have, uh, this comes from their extensive library of birds from literally all over the world. And they put it into an app that then says, okay, we can identify that it's a downy woodpecker versus a hairy woodpecker versus a red-bellied woodpecker. Uh, it will hear things too. And, and my wife and I have experienced this lots of times when we're sitting in the backyard swing and and we turn the app on and and it'll hear something uh we're like no that and, and it's not always it's not a hundred percent accurate because it may misidentify sounds um uh but we were sitting there one evening and said nighthawk and i said what i looked up and sure enough overhead pretty high was a nighthawk flying over and the merlin my ears are pretty bad now with hearing aids and everything, but uh, the Merlin app heard it for me, and then I was able to, to spot it in the sky above me. So it, it helps assist you in determining what you are, are hearing. Now, you do have to take some of it with a grain of salt. If you're not anywhere near water and uh, it, it, hears a, uh, it says, oh, uh, uh, you have a, a great blue heron, uh, you look around and you're going, I don't think so. I don't have any water around here. Uh, it, you know, look overhead and that. But it, it, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, they had their Merlin app on and she sneezed and it said, great blue heron. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, you know, you have to take some of it with a grain of salt when, when, uh, but so it's not, just realize it's not a hundred percent accurate if it, identifies some very rare South American bird from the squeak of your, of your, uh, swing or something it, or a car misfires or something. It, uh, it, it's, it's probably not the case, but it's great fun to know there's more out there and they, it can hear things that many of our listeners maybe can't, including me. And, uh, so it's, it's a fun app and a great way to just sit and enjoy the sounds around you. And it gives you a clue as to what to look for. 
especially things like Warblers that uh, many of our listeners probably wouldn't be familiar with their songs or not able to hear them. And then you can say, oh, it's, it's hearing a, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a yellow warbler. And so you begin to look around, what does a yellow warbler look like? And uh, so it, it connects you more deeply to, uh, uh, to other species. That's another great bird-related uh, uh, app that you can give someone uh, as, a, as a great gift or gift yourself. Right, right. <laughs> um, Lynn has a question for you about feeding birds. She says, are the shelled sunflower seeds as good as the unshelled? They're, they're very attractive. Yes, they are. Um, they will attract uh, lots of birds and the unshelled ones are more expensive because they've been shelled. Um, uh, the birds don't have to do it. So it is a much more expensive way to feed um black oil sunflower seed, but it's fine. If, if that's not a, a problem, uh, you can certainly feed the Sheldons. Yes, it, it's, uh, it's very good, and uh, uh, birds love it, the Sheldons. They, they just go through it so right, quickly. I was going to say, it goes about as fast as candy in the hands of a five-year-old, right? You bet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say that, that some folks, and you can probably find this on the, on the web, have, have fed birds, uh, particularly chickadees and maybe nuthatches, from their hands. You have to be very patient. If you've got birds coming into your feeder, you can put some of the seed right on your hand. And uh, eventually, uh, if you're very patient, you may get some birds to feed right out of your hand. That's not necessary, nor necessarily something I'd recommend, but it's it's kind of fun for some folks. Well, and I, I know that there are people that worry that they're making um, birds dependent on them when they feed right. the birds. That That's not something that concerns you, though. No, it's not at all. In fact, uh, as I've told my wife, and she worries when we travel, oh, my gosh, what, what, are, what are the birds going to do? And, and uh, gee, uh, uh, they, can we have somebody come over and fill the feeders? Uh, and I said, no, it's not necessary. The birds don't, they become accustomed to it, but they're not dependent. They know that it's a great source, and so they'll go to it. But if it gets empty and you're gone for a week, that's okay, because birds will find there's lots of other stuff. As long as there's good habitat around, uh, they will find other seeds to feed on and will be just fine until you're able to, to fill them again. And dependency is, is not a problem. There are concerns about disease spread, and there has been one disease uh, among uh, house finches that has seemed to spread. When, whenever you concentrate wildlife in an area, there's always the potential uh, to spread disease among those the, the species that are there. Uh, this is what's called a mycoplasma disease. Of the, uh, it, it causes their eyes to encrust and they go, they go blind, basically. And uh, so we've seen some reduction in localized um, house finch uh, populations, not house sparrows, but house finches, uh, uh, due to this disease. And it's probably because we've concentrated them around feeders, but it's, right. it's one of the few things. That we're we're going to take another short break. I'm here with wildlife biologist Jim Pease. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about how in this season of giving, we can give to the natural world and also ways that we can deepen our relationship with nature, gifts we can give that can help deepen the relationship of others, people we love, to nature. With me, wildlife biologist Jim Pease. He is an emeritus associate professor of natural resource ecology and management at Iowa State University. And Jim, this time of year, my My email inbox is full of people asking me to make contributions to their organizations. I know IPR is one of those. So we we probably have similar inboxes. There are a lot of environmental nonprofits out there and, you know, a lot of them are doing really great work. But you want to make an extra plug for the local groups, right? Yeah, I think local groups um, often can't take the uh, time and effort because they're, uh, you know, to, to, to make those appeals that on the national level, big, larger groups can. So I think there are lots of ways to give to your favorite conservation organization on the local level that really need your help. Um, and you can do a lot of good. You can give in donations of money, certainly, um, uh, to your favorite friends group. Uh, it might be a local park. It might be uh, the county conservation friends, uh, the, the the partners group for the county conservation board uh, that maintains those local parks. Many city parks now have friends group uh, groups as well that that uh, uh, need the money to help uh, do things in the park that the city or the county can't uh, can't do. Uh, so many of those are are available. You can give in someone else's name as a gift. Many of us, when we reach a certain age, don't need more stuff. You know? <laughs> Uh, so I think that certain can, age might be 35, actually. Yeah. It might be, right? <laughs> uh, it, and uh, it, it's, it's uh, a, a way to give back, to give uh, a gift to the local conservation group in their name and let them know that you've given uh, in their name. And, and that is a, is a wonderful way uh, to both gift them and gift, gift nature. It might be, for example, a certain project. Uh, maybe they're acquiring some land or they're building a trail. Uh, or maybe it's for bringing kids out to their nature center or their, their, uh, to their park. Um, uh, all of those things, if you give a gift in someone's name to that local conservation group, it really makes, makes a difference. There's also another way to give, though, and that's to volunteer your time. You can say, for example, okay, you can write someone a card and say, I'm, I'm giving uh, you eight hours of my hard work uh, in your name to the, the local county conservation board, and we're going to be doing, we're going to be clearing, uh, the hard work is clearing invasive species out of such and such a park, um, uh, or uh, collecting prairie seed uh, uh, in the uh, throughout the summer, and I'm giving you, I'm gifting you, you know, 15 hours of, of prairie seed collecting or something. So, uh, and and there are lots of those uh, of, of projects available on the local level. I know working with county conservation boards, many county conservation boards now have prairies that they're maintaining, woodlands that they're plant replanting, um, uh, uh, all kinds of projects that they need volunteers for. And uh, that's a wonderful gift, I think, to say, I'm going to give this many hours. And you probably end up doing more than that, uh, but that's okay, uh, you know, because you, you, you find out, you enjoy it, you learn something, 
and you've done it in that person's name, and and uh, it's a it's a great gift to them. Well, and it's also an opportunity, and, and this we'll focus more on this in the next few minutes um, to deepen your own understanding oh. of nature, your own connection with nature. Hanging out with knowledgeable folks while helping out <laughs> is a great way to learn. It sure is. It sure is, and it it it's amazing. Uh, the opportunities that are out there to, to share your, your abilities and, and your knowledge. And then you, you gain so much more from it, uh, as well. My wife and I were taking a walk out at a local park, uh, McFarland park here in central Iowa, uh, last week. And, uh, we've just restored, uh, uh, story County has just restored the lake out there. And the lake hasn't filled yet due to the drought, of course. <laughs> uh, but you can see all the structures that have been put in for uh, fish to enhance the fish habitat once the lake fills again. And it's so neat to see that. But people look at that and say, gee, what's that pile of rocks in the middle of the lake? And, and uh, why have you got this flat area about six feet below the water along the shoreline there? It seems to be filled with pea gravel. Well, it's a breeding habitat uh, for bluegills and other panfish. Uh, what are those funny-looking plastic things? Oh, those are those are sort of fake plants until the real plants real plants take over, and it allows uh, a permanent habitat for for fish to get in. So all kinds of uh, things like that. You get out and you begin to learn those things by volunteering and being a part of the the natural world because you're around other people who uh, uh, who do know that stuff, and it's it's pretty cool. It's very very cool. We want to help the children in our lives, and I'm just going to say all children, um, sure. to develop a, a relationship to the natural world. And, you know, kids are, are so much more disconnected in some ways these days. So it can be a challenge to help kids connect with nature, help kids get comfortable in nature. Do you have suggestions for, for things that you can give that won't sound like punishment and <laughs> that just may help help deepen that relationship. You bet. You may not have kids yourself, and uh, but but folks that do are often you know both parents are working and and gee they can't volunteer for every child's activity. Uh, you can volunteer to help uh, take the kids uh, on a field trip, for example. Uh, uh, most schools now have to have volunteers go along. And parents are often really busy and, and can't do that. You might do that for your neighbor or your, your friend or your relative. Um, uh, you say, gee, I, I will be happy to uh, uh, be the, uh, the, the volunteer parent that goes along. Even though I'm not that child's parent, I'll, I'll be happy to, to volunteer to help take those kids. You might volunteer to go read um, some schools I know now have uh, uh, grandparent programs uh, where where uh, my brother-in-law participates in one, for example, in Madison, Wisconsin, where uh, he goes and, and and is a grandparent for a certain um, a grade level in in a in a local school. And right, his this, not you know, not because his grandkids are there, but the right, this is right. This is an honorary grandparent. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and but he goes and he reads. Uh, books to kids 
uh, as a volunteer, and and often they're nature related books, and and from a uh, that's the kind of book that I would read to kids. Uh, and there's so many you know nature related great nature related books out there uh, that it's a wonderful wonderful thing, and it, and it really enriches his life as well as that of the kids. So you can you can volunteer in those. They're they're often um, uh, mentor programs. Uh, you may not have children of your own or grandchildren of your own, but you can mentor, uh, help other others to by mentoring from everything from hunting and fishing to wildlife watching and bird watching. Um, I have a good friend who, who uh, helps kids uh, on, on the, the, when kids come to a park and, and want to look at, uh, a, 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 for a bird watching day, he goes in the blind with them and helps them figure out what birds are seeing and everything. That kind of volunteering enriches your own life, not just, um, uh, and also the kids' lives, right. not, not just and, the kids' And it doesn't just have to be through an organization dedicated to nature. I mean, Big Brothers Big Sisters is always looking for, for volunteers Absolutely. that can be part of that relationship. You bet. You bet. <laughs> as long and as you, you can... also take the child's interests into account. <laughs> right, yeah. And you can bring nature into it. it. It may not be the county conservation, but as you say, it might be uh, boys and girls clubs or uh, uh, you know, big brothers, big sisters. So there are all kinds of organizations that need volunteers. And you can bring the nature angle into it that, uh, uh, that, that maybe other people haven't thought about. Well, and Jim, you mentioned... Um, you know, parents are, are awfully busy. And a lot of parents with multiple kids, uh, I'm thinking yeah. when your kids are, you know, some of them are very little. Maybe you've got older kids who would love an adventure, but it's hard to get away. Offering <laughs> to babysit your niece or nephews uh, so that, you know, a parent could take that older child on an adventure or volunteering to be the one to take that child on an adventure, to be the one to get up in the middle of the night and watch the meteor shower because the parents cannot possibly lose any more sleep or <laughs> or to go. I, I know that going out at night and and looking for great horned owls, for example, is it's an amazing experience, but it also involves sleep deprivation. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's an old book by uh, a wonderful Wisconsin author, uh, Fran Hammerstrom, uh, that was once published. It's out of print now. Uh, once published by uh, uh, Iowa State University Press. It's called Walk When the Moon is Full. And uh, you can... You can commit to taking the neighborhood kids, uh, <laughs> if they're not yours, or, or your grandkids, whatever. Uh, 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 once a month, you go, when the moon is full, you go for a night walk with them uh, on in a local park or uh, uh, to watch that moon, to, uh, to call to the owls, to listen to the, to the, to the owls, to, to hear the, uh, in the springtime, to hear the call of the woodcock uh, as it's it's uh, d doing its unusual display, to uh, uh, in the in the summertime, uh, uh, all the various frogs through the season, uh, different species come at different times through the through the summer, spring and summer. So it's it's a, there are just all kinds of things to to do, and kids mostly most often don't have that opportunity. And parents being very, very busy, as you pointed out, I think from some personal knowledge <laughs> that it is uh, difficult often to uh, to do all the things with your kids. And, and if you can be the volunteer that, that helps them through that period and helps the kids, 
it enriches your life as well. Absolutely. One of the the kindest things that my brother Nathan ever did for us was go on a five-day backpacking trip with us on Isle Royal. And um, our kids were 10 and 12 when we went on that trip, and it was an incredible experience. But having a third adult <laughs> on that trip, <laughs> yes. is, you know, that's that's really what made it possible. And I know he, he really enjoyed it too. But yeah, that being there, being the the strong back when you need an extra strong back or the person who's who's willing to stay up or the person who's willing to have the adventure. I We always have to men- mention Owl Moon. You, you mentioned Walk When the Moon is Full, which is out of right. print, but you can find copies. Owl Moon is a children's book that is very much in print by Jane Yolen, and it's just a classic, and it's about just going wonderful. out. Yeah. And, and that would be a, a wonderful gift and a promise of, of an adventure to go along with it. You bet. Jim, you bet. Be- and there, there are lots of programs that are going on that are very family-friendly, too, as well. I know county conservation boards across the state, nature centers across the state, are offering lots of programs, and you can take not just your family, but maybe other families. Uh, they, they're offering these first day hikes uh, that, that happen on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, um, uh, uh, right around the, the holidays, special special days that uh, uh, there are some winter solstice uh, hikes going on uh, in the next week or so. Uh, get people out and, and see what is the winter solstice and why is that uh, uh, and uh, what's happening at this time of year all kinds of things that you can help uh, get people out on. We only have a few minutes left, and I think that we should end the hour by talking about giving yourself permission to really make spending time in nature a priority. We are all busy, but tell me how you think about that. Yeah, I think that that uh, gifting yourself is important, too, um, if you make a, a, a commitment, for example, to gift yourself um, a, a walk every week during this next year uh, in, a, in a local park, I have a number of friends who walk regularly for their physical health, and that's really important. But walking in nature is so important for your mental health as well. I think we all found that during um, uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, the nature became the the solace that we were seeking, the the support, the solid citizen. Uh, we weren't sure we could trust other human beings, right. but we went to the park, you know, to to seek that companionship with trees and birds and and wildlife. Uh, park use and trail use uh, during the pandemic doubled and tripled uh, in in many cases. Uh, all over the United States and in other countries as well. There's all kinds of data showing that. Uh, we saw that uh, when you have trail counters in local parks and that you realize, boy, it really went up during the pandemic. And it, it said to us, I think it, it identified for a lot of people how important nature is to the human soul, uh, to, to our psyche, to our well-being. And getting out in nature, gifting yourself, making that gift, I think, is uh, a really important um, uh, thing to do for yourself uh, as well. Uh, we've talked about lots of things to do for nature, and, and we are a part of nature. So we need to, to understand that we can, we can, uh, we can gift that to ourselves uh, and, and 
the connection then with other species, uh, be they plant or animal, um, uh, is really, really deepened, I think, when you do that on a regular basis. And uh, so it's a, it's a great gift. Uh, just sitting outside um, in the evening. Uh, uh, I noticed the other night the great horn, I went out to uh, turn off our Christmas lights, you know, and, and I heard great horned owls calling. So I called back to them and one came quite a bit closer, uh, wondering where this, this uh, crazy owl came from, you know. <laughs> so it, it's, it's incredible to, to be able to get out there and just sit and listen. Feel that uh, sense so. of awe. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and the sense of connection. Right, I, I think that's that's really really important, and we're missing so much of that. I think, and uh, that many of us found that out, especially or rediscovered that during the pandemic, when we couldn't be around large groups of people, but we could be close to nature. Right. And, uh, well, and Jim, it makes me think about my favorite Richard Louv quote, which is, "We cannot protect something we do not love. We cannot love what we do not know, and we cannot know what we do not see or hear or sense." So you have to deepen that relationship and help children deepen that relationship so that we will protect what we and love. It's a great season to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Jim Pease, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Wildlife biologist Jim Pease. He is Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Happy Holidays. <laughs>